coming up. If ever you disturb our streets again, your lives shall pay the forfeit of the peace. Can streets discriminate? If streets discriminate, is it by accident or by design? What's well designed about the streets where we live and work? What's not well designed about the streets where we live and work? I bet he's wishing he had a hybrid, right? 60 miles to the gallon in the city. I bet he's wishing he was strangling something. Okay, that's our street. That's our street. He's going down our street. Come on! Okay, everybody. design of our streets be a matter of justice? You don't make up for your sins in the church. You do it in the streets. Can streets discriminate? Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Why is there so much terrible urban design out there? How can we make our streets more welcoming to everyone? Is the perfect city just a mirage? Welcome to Philosophy Talk the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Josh Landy. And I'm Ray Briggs. We're coming to you from our respective shelters in place via the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where Ray teaches philosophy and I direct the Philosophy and Literature Initiative. Today we're asking, can streets discriminate? Oh, streets can definitely discriminate. I mean, look around you, Ray. The toxic power plants in poor neighborhoods, public transit that only serves some areas, uh, buildings that no one in a wheelchair can access? Well, yeah, that's just bad design. Doesn't discrimination have to be on purpose? Well, okay, so what about park benches designed so homeless people can't sleep on them? Or, or freeways deliberately planned to separate the black part of town from the white part of town? Yeah, those are better examples. But what are we going to do about it? Oh, that's simple. Just hire some architects to design the ideal city, then build it. Easier said than done. What if the ideal city is good for the people, but it's bad for business? Or what if homeowners think that, oh yeah, the changes are great in principle, but then they don't want any of it in their backyards? Focusing on a distant ideal just isn't practical. We need justice here and now. Uh, look, I love pragmatism as much as the next person, but we need a clear idea of what we're w working towards. Oh, please. How is an elite group of architects even supposed to know what an ideal city looks like? Maybe they'll design an efficient highway system, uh, clean suburbs with plenty of houses, a fancy shopping district. Well, that doesn't sound so bad. Uh, yeah, and then they'll just ignore all the poor people who live in apartments and rely on public transportation and just want affordable groceries. Well, I mean, of course, they shouldn't design a city without gathering information first, right? I mean, they should find representatives from every group that's going to be affected by their decisions and canvass them about their concerns. Okay. So suppose your architects go and they interview a bunch of people and they make a list of all the things the city needs, like affordable housing, uh, public transit, parks, racial integration, environmentally friendly design. How, how are they ever going to know what to prioritize? Well, they can have a rational discussion and, and come to some sort of agreement, like at a philosophy department meeting. <laughs> okay, even granting that optimistic view of political debate and that optimistic view of philosophy departments. 
<laughs> there are other reasons why building the ideal city just isn't practical. Well, look, maybe it isn't easy, but it's the right thing to do. Well, that's not always so clear. Like, suppose you want to tear down those highways that run through poor neighborhoods. Well, that's going to create a lot of waste and pollution. I mean, I accept that there are going to be costs and benefits, but, you know, you look at the costs, you look at the benefits, you weigh them up and you make the best choice. Yeah, but it's, it's not always easy to know what the best choice is. Like, maybe you think, oh, the best choice is going to be preserve historic architecture in every one of its details. And then you just end up preserving historic injustice, too. And you're stuck with those buildings that no one in a wheelchair can access. So how do we sort out all the competing demands when it comes to public spaces? We sent our roving philosophical reporter, Holly J. McDeed, to find out. She files this report. When it comes to the pandemic, we're still sorting out competing visions for public space. Take Lake Merritt in Oakland, California, for example. Lake Merritt is this magical tidal lagoon, the first wildlife sanctuary in North America. I haven't been lately, but I have wandered through the virtual neighborhood of Nextdoor.com. And Nextdoor is abuzz with people worried about the crowds and gatherings at Lake Merritt. I've seen lots of people out picnicking, kids, families, not wearing masks. I feel like I'm getting a lot more exercise because I'm constantly jumping out of the way of people. It's annoying to have somebody huffing and puffing from running and they're a foot away from me. And I told my friend, this is the last time I'm coming here. Health officials around the country have been sounding the alarm about crowded parks since sheltering in place began. But during my travels on Nextdoor, I also meet Christina Beach, who speaks of her endless love for Lake Merritt, especially now. I've got construction going on on every single block. I work from home, so I basically have to go escape to the lake just to have a refuge from the noise. And she worries that new rules and citizen policing could make people feel unwelcome at the lake. Weeks ago, she overheard a woman at the coffee shop pleading with a police officer to deal with the crowds. I'm just frustrating that people aren't thinking of positive solutions that preserve what the lake is and instead of thinking about ways to make it a private front yard. <laughs> lake Merritt has long been a flashpoint for debates about who gets to access public space. In 2018, a white woman called the police to report two black men grilling at the lake. Someone is illegally using a charcoal grill in a non-designated area on, um, in Lake Merritt Park. And issues around policing of public space haven't gone away. Jason Corborn directs the Center for Global Healthy Cities at UC Berkeley. He says the pandemic has only added new concerns around equity. Low-income residents are often living in smaller living quarters with no backyard, no front yard, no balcony, no way to get outside. They may be in an unhealthy home, that may have toxic mold or lead or other things that we're not addressing. Corburn says not everybody lives near a well-maintained park, and that's partly because of the history of how and where parks were created. Parks emerged largely as a result of elite visions of contemplation spaces for the wealthy, as if they, people in urban areas would get to the great wilderness of the West with a little microcosm in their urban area. Activists, mostly women, fought to make parks enjoyable for more people. Instead of strict, quiet spaces that catered to wealthy adults, parks became places for children to play. 
but there are still people who aren't well served by the parks near them. When you've got a park that's built by expert planner designers, it very rarely relates to the local culture or practices that people may want. And they often put restrictions on that park, like, okay, no vending or no barbecues. And that's a problem because part of what people want out of parks is a social space. They're places where we interact with people. That's healthy. Still, during the pandemic, officials worry about the crowds. Boston, Minneapolis, and Oakland have closed off certain streets to cars to give people more space. But Corburn says that's not enough. To say, okay, now just go out and play in the street, I think really ignores the role public spaces play, you know, to create health, but also, you know, to give people a sense of place and a sense of home and ownership. In the meantime, like Merritt regulars like Christina Beach say there are ways to go outside and stay safe. A couple of times a day, Beach puts on a mask and braves a walk out of her apartment to the lake. Sometimes joggers get too close, so she freezes, ducks, and then gets out of the way. And often she plops down on a park bench and watches the community in motion from a distance. I feel very grateful that I live next to a beautiful lake. The range of activities are amazing. You can see drummers, you can see little rap groups, you know, bubble machines, jugglers. You have the bird watchers. It just represents the best of open. For Christina and others, outdoor spaces can be both soothing and mellow and kind of a minefield. But it's one that she and so many others will navigate for the sake of getting outside. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Holly J. McDeed. Want to hear more? You can find the complete episode on iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, become a subscriber at philosophytalk.org.